Hello, this is Patrick Ridgel, and once again, I'm here with Transamerica Asset Management Chief Investment Officer, Tom Wald. Tom, welcome back. Thank you, Patrick. Nice to be back. So in our last discussion, you reviewed your mid-year market outlook. Lots of really good stuff in there about where you see things headed for the rest of 2020 and into 2021. And now as we finish out the summer, how are you breaking everything down? Yeah, it's uh, it's really interesting, Patrick. Uh, there is a myriad of developments. Everyone seems to be watching very closely right now. Everything from COVID-19 virus trends to the pending economic recovery to corporate earnings to interest rates and Fed policy to the, to the congressional disagreements going on about extending fiscal stimulus to the prospects of a vaccine and, of course, yeah. the upcoming November elections. Yeah. So how do you tie all of these together if they can be tied together? Yeah, so I think you have to take a step back and look at a big picture scenario to determine whether the markets continue to move forward or, or reverse direction. And to me, that picture is an economic and corporate earnings recovery over the next year or two taking place alongside a more friendly overall investment environment, at least more friendly to stocks and credit-oriented fixed income. Okay. So one topic getting a lot of focus right now is the recent rally we've had in stocks. Yeah. That, yep. that are now, I mean, st- despite everything that's happened in the past year, they're close to the record highs as of last February at least in terms of the S&P 500. That's right. So now in your outlook, you referred to as a uh, to a back-to-the-future scenario for stocks. <laughs> what, exactly, what exactly do you mean by that? Sure. Well, I'm, I'm probably showing my age a bit here with this uh, analogy. But if you were to think back to the 1985 classic movie, Back to the Future, uh-huh. the film's protagonist, Marty McFly, is thrust back 30 years into the past and then spends the majority of the movie trying to get back to the present. Uh, The changes he then creates in ultimately getting back there actually wind up altering the course of history. And as a result, when he finally does return to current day, his uh, somewhat mediocre family has become rich and successful. And their nemesis, (laughs) Biff the bully, is now washing his father's car. (laughs) So, okay, so your point is, (laughs) Okay. Well, first, I want to apologize for spoiling the plot on this movie in case anyone out there has not seen it over the past 35 years. Uh, But but with that said, uh, the overall metaphor in terms of an investment thesis here is we have aggregate GDP and corporate earnings that have been severely suppressed as a result of the COVID-19 induced uh, great lockdown put into place earlier this year, it will probably take until about the end of 2022 for GDP to get where it was pre-pandemic at the end of 2019, at least in inflation-adjusted terms. Mm -hmm. And it will probably take the S&P 500 underlying company earnings about to the end of 2021 to do the same. But but, uh, here's the crucial component of the investment case. When the economy and stock earnings do return to their pre-virus levels over the next couple of years, the back to the future thing, uh, they will arrive there with much lower interest rates at their sales and in all likelihood continuing Federal Reserve monetary stimulus in the form of trillions of dollars in large scale asset purchases providing a high degree of market liquidity and credit support. Under this scenario, the markets could then you know, very well price that same level 
of 2019 earnings at a meaningfully higher valuation. And you view this as a realistic outcome over the next one or two years? You know, I, I do. Uh, Patrick, I wouldn't pull Marty McFly out of the shadows <laughs> of history if I didn't think there was at least a realistic probability of this. Okay, I, I suppose not. Thank you for that metaphor, which I'm sure a few of us will forget anytime soon. Um, <laughs> now, if I'm not mistaken, this sounds somewhat familiar to what happened after the global financial crisis and the Great Recession back in 2009. Yes. So aside from 1980s movie scripts, there is some precedent here. Back in 2009, we were also looking at corporate earnings growth and aggregate GDP that had taken a big hit from pre-recession levels. And just like today, the Fed went to zero short-term interest rates and instituted large doses of monetary stimulus in the form of large-scale asset purchases, ultimately totaling about $4 trillion. So back then, we officially emerged from recession after the second quarter of 2009. We reached pre-recession corporate earnings by the end of 2010, and inflation-adjusted pre-recession aggregate GDP by about the midpoint of 2011. And during those two years, June 2009 through June 2011, the S&P posted a cumulative total return of 45%. Wow. You think we'll see that type of move in stocks again? Uh, well, not necessarily of quite that magnitude. Uh, that, that was a big move, of course. But I think based on the similarities, we could be setting up for a double-digit type annual returns over the next two years in stocks. Yeah. Uh, there's an old saying that you know history may not repeat itself. But it does often rhyme, and yeah. I think we could be looking at a 2009-type rhyme here. Okay. And, and a key verse in that rhyme, so to speak, is that uh, we see the interest rate environment coming from the Fed as being exceptionally accommodative for the foreseeable future. I, I think we mentioned last time that we just don't view this as a, a quote-unquote LFL, as in lower for longer rate environment, mm -hmm. but probably closer to an LFROL, as in lower for the rest of our lives uh, type mm -hmm. environment. Uh, we just don't see the Fed raising rates until we are well out of the woods on an economic recovery. And we also see at least a couple more years, if not longer, of large-scale asset purchases by the Fed as we recover. Remember, after the financial crisis and uh, Great Recession ended in 2009, the Fed stayed active in the open markets for another five-plus years to the end of 2014. So, of course, even with the low rates, all of this is based on an economic recovery. And and we just witnessed the single worst quarter of economic contraction like in history, correct? Uh, yes, that's correct. And, and as we've said before, there, there's no sugarcoating that. The second yeah. quarter of 2020 will go down in history and for all, in per, for all intents and purposes, uh -huh. it probably has already gone down in history uh -huh. as the worst single quarter of economic decline since GDP began to be measured on a quarterly basis in 1947. Absolutely devastating. GDP was down 33% on an annualized basis, 21 million jobs lost. Maybe the early 30s had a worse single quarter, but we'll probably never know that for sure. So we might as well consider this recently concluded second quarter the worst ever. So how does that fit with the potential scenario you just laid out? Well, it's important to remember that this past 
horrendous second quarter we all just experienced was pretty much a self-induced economic shock. A necessary self-induced shock, of course, as we had to flatten the curve on COVID-19, no question about it, but still an extemporaneous shock. So as that shock ends, a recovery becomes more evident. The good news is that we very likely will come out of recession in this quarter that we're in right now. Since that traumatizing April employment report, when the economy lost more than 20 million jobs and unemployment jumped above 14 percent, we have had three consecutive months of job gains uh, and have recouped uh, close to about half of those lost jobs. And right now, most third quarter GDP forecasts are calling for about plus 20 percent growth on an annualized basis. But of course, uh, let's remember GDP math here, a 33% annualized decline followed by a 20% annualized rise still puts you down a good bit from where you began. And remember, we had a negative 5% print uh, on GDP in the first quarter. So uh, we have a ways to go here, but unless we shut down again, I think we're on the right track. So speaking of which, ultimately the recovery in the economy and corporate earnings They'll all be driven by a recovery in actual virus trends. That's right. Um, And we've been seeing virus trends go the other way, really spiking since about early June or so. Yes. So so no question, overall COVID-19 infection rates have really ballooned since we thought they might have been getting under control back at the start of the summer. And and no question, this is not good. We're up over 5 million total cases in the U.S. now. That's about 1.5% of our total population. And the daily case rates have now far exceeded the previous high points of last April. And we've seen daily increases in COVID-19 diagnosed patients run as high as 70,000 in one day, although that number has been coming down a bit. In recent weeks. Now, as bad as those numbers are, and don't get me wrong, they are really concerning and, of course, devastating to those affected. There are some cross currents uh, investors should be aware of. Such as? Uh, okay, since uh, we began to see the second spike in the virus back in about the second week of June or uh, June 7th, at least uh, as I have defined it. Uh, With those rising cases, we have seen lower percentages of fatality rates and faster recovery rates. Uh, As of June 7th, the U.S. had a total fatality rate, that's fatalities divided by total cases, of just below 6%. Since then, using the cases that have been reported after June 7th, you know, which is a lot, it's it's more than 3 million cases, which is a staggering number. Mm-hmm. But of those cases, the fatality rate has been much lower at about uh, at about 1.6%. And the recovery rates have also been rising quite a bit and are at about 60% of those cases since June 7th, you know, whereas they'd only been at about 38% as of that date. So, of course, uh, when you are dealing with numbers of a life-threatening and life-taking nature such as COVID-19, it's hard to say there are any favorable trends in the numbers, but we think uh, some of these improving ratios uh, need to be recognized. Uh, and, And when you combine that with better social distancing awareness, 
higher usage of masks and better protective measures for the elderly and more vulnerable, it most likely translates into the odds of another great lockdown, the likes of what we endured uh, during this past March through May timeframe as Mm -hmm. being far less likely to occur in the future. And that infers positive economic growth off of the widespread contraction we just experienced. So in regard to these virus trends, there's been a good bit of anticipation of late about a potential vaccine. How do you take that into account? Uh, Yeah. Well, as we mentioned before, we would view an effective vaccine for COVID-19 as the biggest wild card in the markets over the next several months and probably also the biggest wild card in terms of everyday life for the world's population. Mm -hmm. So while there are a few candidates pretty far along in the research process, there are some really important points to understand pertaining to current vaccine developments. What would those be? Yeah. Okay. First and foremost, of the three or four candidates furthest along, and, and these range uh, from potential vaccines being developed from a small biotech company named Moderna to some uh, being developed by drug giants such as uh, Johnson & Johnson, Pfizer, and AstraZeneca, uh, none of them have yet released data from ongoing phase three clinical trials. Phase three data is the most important in drug or vaccine development as it reports the efficacy of the vaccine in terms of real medical outcomes, as in how many people do or don't get the virus versus a placebo group group not taking the vaccine. Mm -hmm. So we are waiting on this data from a few of these candidates. And and these phase three trials are very large, about 30,000 participants. So they are likely to be representative of whether or not the vaccines really will prove to be effective. There is some talk that we could see some of this data as early as late September or October, but uh, that's just speculation at this point. So a lot of attention so far on potential vaccines, but still a lot we don't know yet. Yes, that's right. Also, remember that vaccines are are rarely 100% effective. So the rough bogey here is can any of these vaccines in development wind up uh, reducing COVID-19 infections by, you know, about 50 percent or more, which would obviously be quite helpful, but far from a cure. But of course, we just don't know yet. We're we're still waiting on the data. And, and, And finally, taking any approved vaccine is, of course, voluntary. Nobody can make anyone take a vaccine if they don't want to. And current polling uh, seems to indicate that between 30 and 40 percent of Americans would choose not to take a COVID-19 vaccine, you know, which is a number consistent with most other previously developed preventative treatments. There's just a general wariness uh, or caution about vaccines in general, I suppose. So, you know, there is there is a good bit of optimism about a vaccine or perhaps a few vaccines. But, you know, there's a dispersion of uh, of potential outcomes here. If one of the vaccines is close to 100 percent effective, you know, it's a game changer for sure. No question about it uh, Mm -hmm. for both the markets and everyday life. Mm -hmm. If one of them, you know, or if the best of them is only partially effective, say 50 percent or so, then, you know, it's more of a favorable incremental factor thrown into the mix with others in terms of curbing the spread. But, you know, as an optimist might view things, and this is perfectly logical, until we hear more in the next few months, 
there remains some chance one of these vaccines could in fact be a home run. Right. Uh, right. So for that reason alone, uh, a vaccine remains, uh, in our opinion, the biggest wild card out there for the markets in the year ahead. Okay, so shifting gears to a far different kind of wild card, we have the November elections less than three months away. Yes, we do. How are you engaging these? Uh, Well, from a market risk standpoint, and as I've said many times before, this is a market observation, not a political opinion. Mm -hmm. The risk could be that we that we get a clean sweep by the Democrats in November. They hold the House. uh, Joe Biden wins the presidency and they regain majority control of the Senate. Uh, if that if that scenario plays out, then we could see quick led a quick uh, legislative move in 2021 to repeal the 2017 Tax Reform Act, uh, perhaps resulting in an increase for both corporate and individual tax rates, uh, along with reversing other measures such as uh, inheritance co- cost step ups and estate tax thresholds, thus uh, thus potentially creating an overall uh, higher tax environment. Under such a scenario, you know, markets could react adversely to this in November, uh, th- though it is a fairly well-known risk right now, you know, and, and could be to at least some extent already in asset prices. How are you seeing the overall election right now? Yeah, it, it's at a critical juncture, uh, especially as we approach September, which has historically been when most undecided voters uh, begin to hone in on their decision. Uh, To throw another left uh, field uh, analogy out there, it's sort of like a basketball game entering the fourth quarter. You've got Biden, who has been holding a a sort of solid 8 to 10-point lead over President Trump in the polls for a few months now. You sort of uh, start to get the feeling, or at least I sort of start to get the feeling, that like a basketball game, that one of two things will happen. Uh, either uh, either uh, Biden extends his lead into the teens and it becomes sort of a blowout, sort of a game over in the next month or so, or uh, President Trump makes makes a run, cutting Biden's lead you know, down to about the low single digits or so, and it, it goes down to the wire. Which do you think it'll be? Uh, so as we stand right now, and uh, you know, the odds, of course, uh, still favor Biden, uh, but we'll you know, we'll know uh, we'll know more in about a month or so uh, if we are going to have a ball game on our hands, uh, which yes. could very well turn out to be the case. Um, I, I think there is probably a better than even chance that Trump winds up cutting meaningfully into Biden's lead, and by November third, it, it it could basically be a to- toss up uh, as to who will win. Why do you say that? Well, I would start with uh, that the economy uh, can probably only help Trump from here on out, in my opinion. He's weathered this absolutely horrific uh, second quarter and is still in the game. If we are looking at annualized third quarter GDP growth of uh, plus 20 percent or so, uh, that could begin to filter through to voters between now and November. Also, the first reported estimate on that third quarter GDP uh, will probably come out the last week of October, which is about uh, one week before the election. Uh, We also have a couple more months of jobs data between now and then. So I think all of this lends itself to more of Trump narrowing the gap than uh, Biden pulling away. But but there are so many other unprecedented variables pertaining to this election. You know, the protests and social unrest in so many cities. Uh, will either candidate wind up doing any real travel or campaign events 
uh, given the ongoing pandemic. What about the debates, which will almost certainly be the first ever in a virtual format? Uh, will the virus trends get better or worse? And of course, uh, will we know more about uh, the potential vaccines that we just talked about? Uh, and of course, one thing I can probably guarantee is that there will be other events or developments impacting the election currently unknown or not on anyone's radar right now. Uh, therein lies the drama that is a U.S. presidential election. Right. So sounds like the next few months could be eventful and exciting on the election front. We'll maybe reserve more time for this topic in our next discussion as November draws closer. Absolutely. Now, before we go, I want to touch on the fiscal stimulus situation and, and the inability of Congress to reach an agreement this past week on extending COVID-19 financial assistance. This must have disappointed investors. Uh, yeah, yes. I, I think it was pretty much uh, disappointing to everyone. Uh, here we are fighting through the worst pandemic in a century and recovering from the most brutal quarter of economic contractions since the 1930s. And the two parties you know, can't overcome their political differences to get a deal passed. Uh, very disappointing. Um, now, President Trump was able to get some assistance out through executive orders pertaining to unemployment insurance, eviction constraints, payroll tax relief, and uh, student loan assistance. But uh, this was in no way a substitute for the more sweeping legislation that had, had been expected. You know, though it perhaps can serve as a bridge to that legislation, which we had previously classified as a bridge to the economic recovery. So we're sort of at a bridge to a bridge right now. <laughs> do you think we'll eventually see a fiscal deal out of Congress in the near future? Uh, I, I do. Uh, okay. It's just too important for them to ultimately walk away from. Uh, you know, history will judge both parties very harshly if they were to not get this done. Uh, perhaps uh, there is a little less urgency in the short term following the president's executive orders. But I, I think we'll eventually see about a $2 trillion package out of Congress, you know, in the not too distant future, uh, which of course follows that uh, $2.7 trillion CARES Act from last March. Hmm. So in closing, what should investors prepare for in terms of volatility over these next few months? Yeah, yeah. Great, great question, Patrick. I think we could see some serious volatility in the autumn months, perhaps in the October-ish timeframe. Uh, okay. The reason I say this is we could be seeing, you know, some of these factors we've been talking about, you know, coming together at that time. Specifically, uh, that could be about when vaccine data gets released to the public. Third quarter economic numbers and corporate earnings are released. Mm -hmm. And of course, the election will be entering its final weeks. And there also could be further uh, stimulus negotiations in Congress. Okay. Based on what we know right now, we would view most of these variables as likely being opportunities for investors if they were to create uh, downside volatility. But of course, uh, anyone who's been involved in investing for more than a few years knows that uh, just in general, the month of October does have its ghosts. And uh, some of these factors uh, could certainly add to that. Okay. So, Tom, we look forward to coming back next month and previewing a little more about some of those potential developments and, of course, anything else that might come up between now and then. Uh, yeah, thanks, Patrick. I will look forward to that. Good deal. To download Tom's complete Media Market Outlook, along with other relevant commentaries, please visit transamerica.com forward slash market dash outlook. That's transamerica.com forward slash market dash outlook. Assets under management as of March 24th, 2020.
Investments are subject to market risk, including the loss of principal. Asset classes or investment strategies described may not be suitable for all investors. Past performance does not guarantee future results. Fixed income investing is subject to credit rate risk, interest rate risk, and inflation risk. Credit risk is the risk that the issuer of a bond won't meet their payments. Inflation risk is the risk that inflation could outpace a bond's interest income. Interest rate risk is the risk that fluctuations in interest rates will affect the price of a bond. Investing in floating rate loans may be subject to greater volatility and increased risks. Equities are subject to market risk, meaning that stock prices in general may decline over short or extended periods of time. Investments in global international markets involve risks not associated with U.S. markets, such as currency fluctuations, adverse social and political developments, and the relatively small size and lesser liquidity of some markets. These risks may be greater in emerging markets. Alternative investment strategies may include long, short, and market-neutral strategies. Bear market strategies, tactical strategies such as debt and or equity, foreign currency trading strategies, global real estate securities, commodities, and other non-traditional investments. The information included in this podcast should not be construed as investment advice or a recommendation for the purchase or sale of any security. This material contains general information only on investment matters. It should not be considered as a comprehensive statement on any matter and should not be relied upon as such. The information does not take into account any investor's investment objectives, particular needs, or financial situation. The value of any investment may fluctuate. This information has been developed by Transamerica Asset Management Incorporated and may incorporate third-party data, text, images, and other content to be deemed reliable. Comments and general market-related projections are based on information available at the time of writing and believed to be accurate, are for informational purposes only, are not intended as individual or specific advice, may not represent the opinions of the entire firm and may not be relied upon for future investing. Investors are advised to consult with their investment professional about their specific financial needs and goals before making any investment decisions. Transamerica Asset Management, TAM, is the asset management business unit of Transamerica. TAM consists of Transamerica Funds, Transamerica Series Trust, and Transamerica Asset Management Incorporated, an SEC-registered investment advisor. 251038 